When the cameras aren't rolling and the spotlight is off, what are your favorite celebs really like? This is Buck the System, the podcast that peeks behind the curtain, under the covers, and brings you along as host Buck Gritano exposes real reality. We started with the captains of the smash hit TV show Wicked Tuna. How cool is that? And every time we buck the system, we have an awesome time doing it. So now, let's have some fun. You ready? Buckle up and let's go. Buck Rattano, bucking around. New show. So I'm going to have this new show where I inter- well, I talk to people who I personally... Okay, no one's involved. Uh, personally, where I want to talk to, uh, my interest is horse racing. Everybody knows Buck. I had passed the Buck talking horses for about six years. This guy would come on, my special guest, Gary Contesta, uh, was a mainstay in my local track for many, many, many years. Uh, Aqueduct Racetrack, uh, spit rock throw across from Jamaica Bay. This guy has titles, and all of a sudden, now no more training in New York. He sets up in Delaware. Gary, thank you for coming on, bucking around. Uh, it's a new kind of a little, little show here. Hopefully, I get more horse racing guys on. I, I'm sure I will. When I think of somebody horse racing, first person I think of knowledgeable, it's you, man. You can you talk the you know the game from inside and out. You didn't come from a family of horse racing. You, you, not that you didn't. I did not. I don't. You know, I I once thought that maybe it was like a past life. Like maybe Roman cavalry or something probably ended up with a spear through my head. But uh, my father was a mailman in Garden City, Italian father, Sicilian father. And my mother drove a school bus and I never saw him. We leave for school in the morning. Uh, we, you know, we, we were on our own until my father got home at eight o'clock at night. My mother got home at six. It, it was just, uh, you know, that's what life was like back then. And but I always had this this ingrained. To, that I was attracted to horses. My parents couldn't drive past a field of horses without stopping and let me try and pet them. And if there was a pony ride sign, I had to go. So as I'm getting older, I realized that Hempstead Lake State Park, right there off the parkway, has a riding academy. And it was run by this, this woman named Barbara. And I, and I went over there with no money, and I was about probably 10 years old. I rode my bicycle there. 20 minutes along the, the Southern State Parkway, but it was a different age, you know? Yeah, definitely. So I rode my bicycle there, and she said, okay, kid, I'll tell you what. I'll give you an hour free riding if you clean all the stalls. She had 50 stalls. I would probably work for about three or four hours cleaning all that muck out of those stalls, and then I would get to go take a horse out and ride along, ride into the park for about an hour. 10 years so, old by yourself, riding the horse by yourself. Wow. Yeah. And as long and if, as long as I didn't, I wasn't late for dinner. My parents never looked for me. I don't think you remember those days. Nobody, no parents ever looked for us. They figured we were at somebody's house, and whoever we, whoever's house we were at at lunchtime, fed us. You know, whatever neighbor, whoever we were hanging out with, they fed us. They fed all the kids. So nobody ever asked. And then I decided. Then I realized that at about twelve, that if I went in the other direction, Roosevelt Raceway was there. And you'd be amazed at how many Roosevelt Raceway trainers were willing to let a kid like me work for nothing. <laughs> they died going there every afternoon after work, muck stalled, groom horses, and they taught me stuff. They kind of liked me. So I grew up at Roosevelt Raceway with harness horses, and I rode, and then I started to jog them in the cart, and I learned how to, 
how to breeze them and everything. And I mean, those guys liked me. You know, they took me out to the bar afterwards when I turned 18. We'd always go to the bar. Everybody after the races at Roosevelt went to that bar in, the, in Westbury there. And um, it was just, it was a good upbringing. My parents never wondered where I was, and all the Harness guys got to know me. Jack Richardson, Jimmy Cruz, Jimmy Cruz Jr., uh, Hervé Fillion, all those guys. I knew them all. I knew them all on a first-name basis. Wow. You're going back to a time where I would go to Roseville Field Mall and drive past there, and it was it was just a shell of itself, the raceway. You know, it was a shell. And I'm like, I missed this. I totally missed this whole – that was the 80s, I believe, right? The 80s, 70s, yeah. 80s. When, 70s, when did, 80s. And it closed down when? When did, uh, when did it close down? Uh, well, I, I went over to Thoroughbreds in 75. And I'm going to say it's short, shut down shortly. We, we used to run to, to Roosevelt afterwards, after work. So I'm going to say it was mid-80s, like 82, 83, 84, right around there, Roosevelt shut down. Because we used to work all day for Jimmy Pacu at Belmont Park. And then everybody would get in my van and we'd try and make the daily double at Roosevelt Raceway. Did you say to yourself growing up, I mean, in, in them times that I want to do this for a career, I'm going to be a trainer or – was that it was that a question at that point 18 17 years old that was what i wanted to do more than anything and but i didn't know if i could do it i was you know pedigree wise i was by nobody out of nobody you know and i watched you know wayne lucas's son come into the game scotty schulhofer's son come into does the that game. make a difference gary does that make a difference that you don't have pedigree in 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 the, in the racing industry no, I, I, at the time i thought it might but it doesn't. You can be anything you want to be if you're willing to sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice to make it happen. Anybody can be anything. I talk to kids all the time, kids that are in a bad situation. I, they're always calling me in to give them a pep talk. And I'm, I tell them the same thing. There is nothing you can't be, but you got to put your heart into it. And I went there and I put my heart into it. I was the best hot walker. When I got done hot walking, I would polish brass. I would watch what the vet did. I would ask questions. I drove everybody crazy. Then I went to Jimmy Pacu, and I would work all day for him. He had a guy named Ren Lawrence uh, as his assistant trainer, and he was a bull rider. And I used to go to Ren, with Ren on the weekends to to um, to rodeos. And one day he says, "You." You, you have the guts to ride a bull? I'm like, yeah, I got the guts to ride a bull. I rode a bull. I started riding bulls. Now I'm working for Jimmy Pacu. I'm riding bulls on weekends and, you know, at night. And it was just crazy stuff. But I love the whole aura of the thoroughbred game. And I knew. And, and what I realized was I outworked everybody. And I just kept going. My graph just kept going up, up, up. And I, and I just, you know, one day... It's like 1980 and Frank Martin, everybody knows Frank Martin, That's Hall of Fame, lunatic, you know, always yelling and screaming and everything. He yells to me from the clock stand, you, I want you in my office. I'm like, oh my God, did I get too close to one of his horses? This guy's going to kill me. He had those blazing blue eyes and he never said anything good to anybody. He goes, I went to his office and I was with Stanley Huff at the time. And I just got, I was working for Laz Barrera and Stanley Huff. And I was with Harborview Farm. And he said, I've been watching you for a long time. I want you to come work for me. I was like blown over. And he said, how much do you make? And I told him I was making top dollar for an assistant trainer. I think I was making like 400. 
He said, I'll give you 800. You come work for me. Shook his hand and thought, gave him a week's notice and went to work for Frank Martin. Yeah. And it was icing on the cake for my career. That man, when he wasn't yelling and screaming, he was teaching. And he was an amazing, amazing horseman. And he made me into a trainer. And when I went on my own training in 1985, he offered me triple that 800 to stay with him. But I was ready. And I went on my own. And I went on my own with a handful of claimers at Monmouth Park. I'd say they gave me about seven stalls. And by the end of the Monmouth Park meet, I was third leading trainer. And I had about 100 horses. <laughs> it was amazing. That's Woody Stevens, guys would send me horses. They sent me their train wrecks. Probably the guy who so, sent me the most horses was Johnny Campo. Johnny Campo, he calls me one day. I got one empty stall. He says, hey, I just put 12 horses on a van and sent them to you. I'm like, I'm like dying. I'm sweating now. I got to go to a farm outside, rent stalls, find a place to put his horses. But I managed to figure it out. But, but that's what, the way it happened. That's the way it went down. What made you such such so good at claiming horses, man? Because when it came to the, the game, of, especially in Aqueduct in the winter time, you 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 were up on the top. I mean, growing up when I was growing up as a kid, you were always on top as leading trainer in the Aqueduct meets, especially the winter meet. What made you yeah. so good at claiming? Frank Martin, I was his scout for claiming, and he taught me day in and day out. When you see a horse walk like this, it's no good. When you see a horse walk like that, it's okay. And, man, he he instilled it upon me looking at claiming horses. And, man, look at the horses that Frank Martin claimed and developed into stake horses. It was unbelievable. Probably the, the thing that I felt worse, the worst thing I felt was when I broke Frank Martin's record for the most wins in one year in New York. I, I didn't want to break that record. I did. I didn't want to break it because Frank Martin was everything to me. And I knew it hurt him I because I know how he is. I knew it hurt him, but he was everything to me. And but it I, should, it's, Gary, it's an extension of you, man. He's an extention yeah. of you. I mean, he's got on this. I mean, t there's tough old got, son of a guns back yeah, there. Yeah, he died shortly thereafter. And, you know, we never talked about it, but I knew, I knew it hurt him. But that, that meant records were made to be broken. That's what records are all about. But that was a, a unbelievable thing. I had won 159 races oh, in New York. Wow. wow. That's, a, that's a lot of wins, man. That's a lot of wins. Now now I look at you, because I haven't been around horse racing in, in, in a while. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I've been following the Triple Crown this year. Uh, but when it comes to the news and everything that's out there, and we talked about it before this, when horse racing gets – uh, uh, bad news. It's it's so much more to bad news. Like I mean, you talk about the whip action, you can't use a whip now. What it for me? I can understand cutting back on how many times you could use a whip in a race, but can you take a whip away from a from a jockey and have him compete in a race and safety? You can't safely, and I'm going to tell you why. And when do you ever see? Johnny Velasquez, he's the most quiet guy in the world. When do you ever see the, the passion he had against this rule? Johnny is, let me tell you about this rule. Horse racing is a 1,200-pound raging animal and a 100-pound human sitting on top of him trying to control him. And the whip has, got, has been 
toned down so much. You, I don't know if you ever saw that video of Ramon Dominguez with the little kid. He's given a whip demonstration. He says, put your hand out. And he smacks the kid on the hand and the kid laughs. He says, that's what it's all about. Whips today are noise to a horse, not pain. In the, Back in the day when Eddie Maple won the, won the Travers on Willow Hour for Jimmy Pacu and I was the assistant trainer, we were getting whip marks off of him for about two weeks. That was different. Now the whips are designed to just make noise. And that, and let me tell you something, you gotta get a horse's attention. If a 1200 pound horse, a rider gets a subtle hint what's going on when he's in the middle of a race. He watches the horse's head. When a horse just cocks his head ever so little bit and he grabs the outside of that bit, you know he's starting to head out. What's going to happen is he's going to cross the path of another horse and they're going to get tangled up and they're going to go down. Most of your jockey injuries, the guys who ended up in wheelchairs, they clipped heels. We call our clipping heels. And they went down because a horse either ducked in or ducked out and they were too close to each other and their legs get tangled up and they go down. And without that whip, if 1,200 pounds wants to turn right and there is no deterrent, turning right. Now, granted, Mama's only running three, three days a week or two days a week right now. They're running X amount of races. There hasn't been a problem yet. But when there is a catastrophic injury because of the whip rule, the worst part of this rule the New Jersey Racing Commission does not have one ex-jockey on it, one horse owner on it, or one ex-trainer on it. Who's making the rules? A guy who has never sat on the back of a racehorse is going to make a rule that, that can actually have an effect. What is that guy going to do? Is that guy going to support that jockey's family that he puts into a wheelchair or that maybe, God forbid, gets killed because a 1,200-pound horse at 40 miles an hour decided to turn right or left and he had no whip to, to get his mind back on business? A very bad rule. And it's a very bad rule all over the, all over the United States because every racing jurisdiction, with very few exceptions, is ruled by guys that were politically appointed – a lot of times it's it's some other part of the government trying to get rid of a guy who's who they got a bug for and they say, Oh, put him on the racing commission. And then he starts making stupid rules, bending, kneeling down to PETA. You know, whoever made that rule, obviously somebody from PETA or one of those organizations caught him by the ear and got the right guy and they were able to make that rule. But that is not gonna be a good rule forever. I don't believe it. I've seen horses do things in a split second where if my riders didn't have a whip in the morning, we would be in big trouble. I don't know how. Sure, right now we've run a few races and, and it's been safe and it's going to be safe, but it's you're asking for trouble because a wild it's a wild animal. It's not, it's not a, a pony. It's not a riding horse. They're going 40 miles per hour and you see how horses are. They bite other horses in the middle of a race. They're snorting. They're carrying on. Most of these horses are are competitors. You know, they're they're very very staunch competitors, and I can't see not having control of the situation. I think you hit it the, the the nail right on the head when you said peer. I think that's the whole thing, and it's just to satisfy them that um, that pesty organization. I can't stand. Because they're, they're, you know what it is? It's almost like they're like a cult to me. They're, that's how I look at them. Almost like you cannot tell them nothing when it comes to horse racing. So, I mean, you're going to... They are a cult. 
They don't have anybody at PETA that is, they don't have the support of any jockey in America, any trainer or any horseman in America. You don't hear anybody standing up for PETA. So all, the, all of their ideas and all of their rules comes from a, you know, watching a video of when there was a catastrophic accident or whatever, but they don't know the situation. There's no follow-up. They just want to glorify the negative. And that's what they do. They glorify the negative. I mean, not having a whip on a horse. We're not beating horses up. Even if you gave a jock a whip and said you could use it three times, three times, you, you hit the fourth time, it's a $500 fine. Three times, that would be enough to correct any bad situation. Yeah, but you, who wants to be the rider on that horse, Gary? And you say, now I use I used it twice. It's almost like using a timeout. Now you can right. use these timeouts in these games where you get a penalty if you if you take a timeout and if, if you're wrong. Uh, but I just don't see how you've changed the game for somebody like that. And, and, and the people that are doing it for a living, like Hall of Fame, Jockey, Kentucky Derby, Johnny Velasquez says, I'm never going to step foot in that racetrack again, no matter what the money is. So if a guy right. like that or other guys I see on social media, if they're telling you they're not going to step foot in there, how's the, how is racing going to survive? I, I can't see it. I, in I in New Jersey, I should say. In New Jersey at Monmouth. New Jersey, New Jersey has been on um, oxygen, <laughs> on uh, life support for a while. You know, I, I, I don't know. Without help from the the government without help from the, the legislature, I don't know that they would survive, but they do have, they do get subsidized by the legislature in New Jersey. So that really helps, but they're making it a lesser product. They're making it a lesser product. And by not, by having rules like this and accepting rules like this, it's really simple. Oh, we, might managed, just, we might as well just have a virtual reality race, man. We'll get fake horses, yeah. fake jockeys and have random, Random yeah. virtual reality races. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's just it's just a bad situation. And you know, I remind you back. Remember when Shapiro took over the California Horse Racing Board, and he was just a suit. He was just a lawyer, and he said, "We're going to change all the tracks to to Peta. And they change, and they said, "We're we're going to put you out of business if you don't change your track to Tepeda." And Bay Meadows went to Tepeda, and and Santa Anita went to Tepeda, and that became a worse disaster than than even the dirt situation this year. You know, and that was that was a guy in a suit who knows nothing, listening to somebody who somebody and, sold him on a bill of goods. That this, right. you know, I got you totally. Now we'll look at somebody like you, Gary, man. You're you're a staple, were a staple in the community in in Naira, New York Racing Authority. I turn on one day, I I see I don't know Blood Horse and Gary's no longer gonna train. He's gonna go and be a jockey agent. Kieran McLaughlin, he's a jockey agent. How, what happened? I know what happened, but how out of nowhere, boom! You're not training no more in New York. Well, the Department of Labor came into New York and they grabbed what they perceived to be the top trainers. M most of the larceny is below the top and they probably should have just done everybody, but they grabbed about 10 of us and they said, look now, perfect example, Kieran McLaughlin, Pletcher, Chad, every, all of us, we come up under other trainers, Bobby Franco for Chad, Frank Martin for Gary Contessa, Wayne Lucas for Kieran. 
And we've been in a business where you're taking care of four live animals. So the so what it it's all over the country. You you pay a groom say $700 a week to take care of those four horses. Of course, you give them 1% of whatever the horse earns. Now, the problem is you have some grooms that are 80, 70, 80 years old and some grooms that are 25 years old. And some guys get done in four hours and some guys like to come stick around and hang out and polish their breath and sit on the box and tell stories about when racing was different and everything else. So the Department of Labor came in and said, oh, you paid these guys all wrong. And they they requested all our payroll records and they said that we, they didn't have any proof, but because none of us punched a time clock, we, um, we all were fined upwards of a million dollars a piece. Oh, it put me out of business because my wife, as you know, is very ill. Her doctor bills alone were over a million dollars. So it, it didn't put me out of business yet. I, I got on some kind of payment plan and I was going to stick around. So in January, I started doing things the way the Department of Labor told me to do it. Now, if, if you know anything, 90% of the trainers in New York charge $100 a day to train a horse. And probably guys like Pletcher and Chad, they're a little higher up on the totem pole. They I'm probably sure get they are. I'm sure they 140, are. 140. But now the Department of Labor came in and said, you got to punch a time clock. Well, when we started punching a time clock, the slow guys get done slow, the fast guys get done fast. My payroll alone went to $105 a day. Now, I'm only charging $100 a day to train a horse. So I'm losing $5 a day for every horse I have in my barn. Now I got to feed them. That's $25 a day. So now I'm losing $30 a day. Then your office incidentals, uh, websites, computers, um, you know, other expenses, tack, uh, liniments, everything. To break even in New York, I would have to charge $150 to $160 a day. Now, I can't get that. So I, my two choices were to continue to go into arrears or walk away from the business. Kieran saw it. He walked away. I saw it. I walked away. Gary Gullo saw it. He walked away. Gary's good guy. And the only way you can survive is to charge $140, $150 a day or cook the books and cheat. And I'm not saying all the other trainers are cheating, but I'm saying there's no way that, that they can be punching a time clock because they can't, they can't possibly survive. The guys like Siaka and Noda and all these guys that are the name guys now, they can't possibly survive if they're punching a time clock. So if the Department of Labor decides to go around again and come back in again and do a new group, you're going to have a new group of people quitting. The Department of Labor put us out of business, and Naira didn't care. Naira, once again, only cared about Naira. So I left, and I and I was and it, things were not going all that well. I was doing I was doing good. I was doing. I owned a I owned a. a um, an arcade up near Lake George. Oh, and I was really? making. Oh, get out of here. Really? And then COVID, then COVID comes in and we've been closed down for over a year with COVID. I had You're a, not, hold I, on a second, I, Gary. You're not yeah. in the strip over there. There was a, an arcade on the strip on one of the corners right in town. Right. We were, we were in the strip where we were the one closest to Frankenstein's castle. Okay. And when we got shut down in, I'm going to tell you straight, 
when we got shut down in March, the landlord said, I still want $30,000 a month for the time that you're not open. And I, and we took over a year, that's $360,000. We had to close down. I don't know if it's going to reopen as an arcade or what, but we shut down. We closed down the business. Oh, man. So then, so then I took a job with Capital OTB, and I was doing good, and I was doing interviews at Naira, and, I, and it was nice, but it wasn't what where my heart was. I love to talk to people. I love to work for Capital OTB, but I really couldn't support my family. They need help. Capital OTB needs help with their YouTube channel and other people, putting regular people in the shoes. Because I see the YouTube is like, I check them out and they had like 25 views. I mean, it's like Belmont Stakes is going on tomorrow. Right. You have 25 right. views. Some guy, random guy is on there talking horse racing. He's got 8,000 and I'm like, 10,000. What, what, what is it with them that they don't put the effort into their into their like um, a television or. I don't have anything bad to say about them. I really like them, but I really had a lot of ideas as to how they could do it better, yeah. and it was it wasn't well received. So they're very happy with what they do. You know, I I don't know what the numbers are, but I, yeah, they're yeah, very yeah, happy. I got you. No, I got you, Gary. I got they're you. I didn't see. They're I... not looking to expand. No, I, I just don't I don't understand, man. It seems like with horse racing, people want to help or people want to do. And it happened to me. It happened to me. So I know exactly what Naira and I'm not saying Naira, the people there now, because I'm sure it's not the same people. I'm sure it's not where I used to put in for credentials and they would tell me no declined. And what you're doing is not good enough for us because you could do what you're doing at home. You don't have to come here. But if I want to watch a baseball team and talk about a baseball team, would you go to a couple of games to see it right. live, to maybe talk to a couple of people? No, shut me down. Shut me down. So I don't know what it is about, like, just trying to support the, the sport. I loved my years at Naira, but the head accountant, David O'Rourke, not great guy, but he becomes CEO. Why not? Why not find a CEO that really knows racing inside and out? I mean, how many? Just, how, how many? How many? CEO, how many people they had in charge since you were there at Naira? None. You can't even count it. Can't even count it. And probably the best one is the one that got run out on a rail, Charlie Hayward, because he knew horses. He owned the racing for me. He was a good guy. He, you could knock on his door and he'd listen to you. You know, he he would open the door for you and try and make changes for you. I've, I've reached out to David O'Rourke. David O'Rourke wouldn't even give me an interview for Capital OTB. I've told him about problems. I've told him about things he needs to do for the horsemen. He didn't want to hear about it. You know, Martin Pence is a good guy, but he's a – but he's also a little bit overworked and and he, a little bit um, how do you how do you how do you describe Martin Panza when when you try and talk to him he can be a little bit sometimes a little bit irritated let's say that good guy closest thing we have to a horseman over there but he he's probably has to do too much do you miss do you miss um, the mornings in there now you're in Delaware I, I should say is it a huge difference of training in New York and training in Delaware, is there a difference? You see any difference yeah. or New York, New York is loud, boisterous, dog eat dog. You're always on edge. People are trying to take your owners. People are trying to take your horses. You know, there's there's very little camaraderie among people in New York. In Delaware, I love the track. The people would give you the shirt off their back. Everybody reaches out to you. Every trainer talks to each other. 
They, I mean, it's a beautiful place to train. Uh, you know, it, I hope I get to keep this job for a long time because it's a great place to train. And I have a, I have the best job in America. I got hired by Bell Gable Stable, Nick and Dolores Viva. They, they pay me a salary to run their entire operation, which is broodmares, weanlings, yearlings, and racehorses. We started off big. We bought a yearling last year. I ran him day before yesterday. He won by 11 and a half, first time out, two-year-old. And believe me, what, what everybody knows about Gary Catessa from the years in New York, I never crank a two-year-old to win first time out. If they win first time out, there's something special. This guy ran away and hid. You will see him, God willing, uh, in the Sanford Stakes at Saratoga, second day to me. Oh, that's awesome, man. I love to see you come back to Naira and just – Big win, you know what I mean? I, that would be so nice. Win and leave. Win and leave. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Getting up and seeing now the stables over there at Delaware. Now I know the racetrack. The, I don't know how it used to be when I used to handicap it. The turf was an amazing turf. They always had an amazing turf. Uh, Condition-wise, on the main tracks, is there so much difference in the main track state at Belmont? Because Aqueduct is going to be pretty much non-existent anymore. That I hear. Uh, right. The Belmont, they're building that thing out in Long Island, uh, which I guess it is. I don't know. When, first of all, difference of the tracks, main tracks, or is it different? Does is, you change your style of training being at different tracks? Because That's I, what I, I have, have to say. Style of training a little bit for the better. I've changed my style of training because I I've had lifted the burden lifted off my shoulder of chasing money, chasing taxes, chasing the Department of Labor. I, there are so many distractions on being a horse trainer in New York that I don't have anymore. I get to go to the barn every day. I get to graze my horses. I get to look my horses in the eye. I get to feed them. I know who's eating, who's not eating. I get to I get to call an audible at the line of scrimmage and change a training on a horse because I know him and he's not the same today. It, training has become such a pleasure for me now that I know these horses. When I trained in New York, for lack of a better term, and I think it's universal, you don't know your horses like I do now because you are so you are so you're so busy when you're in New York. There are so many other obstacles to being a horse trainer in New I York. I think the chasing the money down angle is the is the is the number one up here because I had a guy now I worked in a I work in a plumber supply. One of my plumbers did a job for a trainer in New York. I'm not going to say his name. Did his whole boiler. Did his whole boiler on the arm. You know this guy, six years later, is still chasing this guy down. And this guy has won great in stakes races over the last couple of years. Can and you, you know that? what that is? Let me tell you about why that's a trainer doing that. Because it's a trickle down. I, I trained for a guy, big, big name in New York. We're not going to say who. And that guy owed me $180,000. That's my payroll, my feed bill, everything. Now, I can't make that up at the races. He owes me $180,000. And it was the days when the racing form had charts. I look at, I look at the charts from Gulfstream, and he claimed four horses for a total of $125,000 the day before at Gulfstream. I picked up the phone. I said, that's the, that's 125 of the 180 you owe me. Oh, no, it's not. You you wait for your money, blah, blah, blah. You'd be amazed. There's not a trainer on the backside that's not chasing money. Oh, it's, it's a terrible thing. 
And that's the worst part. I'm happy that I see you. You look reborn. You look like you're. You, I mean, it's been a while. I mean, it's been I, when I started uh, past the buck. I started in 2012. No, 11 to 12. Tony Dutro just took his um his uh, suspension, and I try to text him. I would text him all the time during the suspension, thinking I can get an interview with him. Kind of faded away. Have you 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 seen him around? Is he still? Richard Dutro. What I say? Well, I said Tony. I'm sorry, wrong one. I'm Richard. Because you brought him up, and I'm not afraid to speak my mind. Yeah. Rich, I don't know if you you know this, but you can you can Google search Gary Contessa Richard Dutro, and you're going to see the time that he and I were throwing haymakers at each other at Saratoga Racetrack. Yeah. He used to call me a cheater. He used to call me this. Hey, blah blah blah. He, we, there was a hatred between us. Really. But but let me tell you. Richard Dutro is the smartest trainer I ever met. And there's no way he wasn't set up for that 10-year suspension. There's no way he had drugs in his tack room. There's no way those were his syringes. The investigator hated him more than he hated anything in this more than world. He hated, more than he hated you. And I guarantee you he was set up. And, and even Steve Lewandowski, the Naira steward, the state steward, in New York, before he retired, he came out and said, I was I know for a fact he was set up. Nobody will listen to him. They just put it under the rug. Dutro, Dutro got the worst. That was the worst thing. Now his mouth, he had a big mouth. Nobody liked him. He and I didn't like each other, but believe me, he didn't deserve what he got. That's amazing, man. And I haven't heard from him. And he made a bad deal. Ten years he has to stay out of the horse business in and any horse business so he got a job for stronach breaking his two-year-olds and they said nope you can't do that you really? can't go to horses wow, that that's that's that was that one. it was, was bullshit. i'll be honest with you when i when i first got into racing i mean interviewing guys like you got trained his jockeys on i i i called him up he came on he no problem he yeah. was never a problem with any i'll be honest with you i would say to the tip tip top I can't touch in horse racing because there's some of them guys don't even want to be bothered. They have too many things right. going on. The middle of the pack are the guys that are the love. They understand how the business works. They understand that maybe they they see you here now. Some guy in Delaware goes, "Oh, you want to train these horses? Or you want to? You know, you know what I mean? The connections and yeah. meeting people. That's what horse racing is about. And that's what I loved about horse racing because there was a guy, Mike Compton. He he was uh, he used to work for. Um, why to why? One of the one that he took me under his wing, man. And he was at Florida. He was down in Florida doing a, a magazine. And this guy totally took me under his wing. And he was like, it, it, I needed that because I had no one in the racing industry. No one. I, I knew nobody. But I was big enough mouth to walk around and buy the security guard a, a water by Belmont. So he let me in the paddock because I was bought him a water or a soda. And yeah. he let me go in. I mean, I got to do my New York thing. You know what I mean? I would, yeah. I'd walk to Aqueduct. Yeah. I'd walk to Aqueduct and I'd walk right in the trainer's room like I owned it. Uh, and, and it worked. But not anymore. Now it's like, kid, you can't even get in the racetrack. Uh, let's let's go over one more thing. Delaware, are, are they are they racing with the crowd at Delaware? Yes. We've lifted the mask ban down here, everything. We don't have masks anymore. The, everything's open to full capacity. And uh, they, you know, and they, it looks like a domino effect. Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania next week. And I mean, New York will be the last, but I, get, I know it looks like you're getting close too. They, they announced full capacity for Saratoga, right? 
Oh, that's that. You gotta have that. That that's yeah. you gotta have that. Now I can't go to my uh my my arcade because it's not there no more. My my. Yeah. But it might be. I'm sure somebody will take that property oh. and make it an arcade. But but it was a it was a cash cow for a long time for my family and and uh, we just we had no choice. COVID COVID changed a lot of things. It did it did. You know? And people had to help other people in order to survive. Mental and health there, too. Yeah, and up there they didn't want to help. We had to, unfortunately we had to go down. So the capital OTB thing was good for me. I couldn't support my family with it. And when Nick called me and said I want a private trainer, man. This is this is the best thing that could have happened to me, and it's looking like it might not be a bad thing for him either. <laughs> I see, man. You got that horse. Gonna got that horse. I love it. Saratoga time. Can we I won two races that day, just to show you that, that I still have it. It was the two-year-old. He wins by eleven and a half lengths, and then three races later, I win a nickel claimer. <laughs> so oh. I, can, I still get train a bad claiming horse too. That's incredible. Let me get into one more thing before I let you go. You know, it's a Friday night. Um, the Bob Baffert situation with the, you know, Molina spirit and stuff like that, um, testing positive for, I don't even know, when it comes to any kind of drugs, when it comes to horse racing, doping or anything like that, I have no clue. I can't speak upon that. Uh, right. Can you explain what was he, what was the horse tested positive for and is that common or enough to be, you know, not welcome to any kind of tracks after that? Okay. Betamethasone is the drug of choice to put into a horse's joint. If he has fluid in his ankle, fluid in his knee, fluid in his hock, betamethasone is the, they, it used to be Depomedrol, but they ruled that off. We can't use that at all. So betamethasone is the drug of choice when you have to inject a horse's ankle or, or any part of his body. Now, so most horsemen think Bob just got too close on injecting that horse, but it's also possible that it, because betamethasone is in over the, if you go to Walmart and you go to the first aid aisle, you will find five or six first aid salves and creams and, and some of the, the anti-itch medication for a skin rash or something. They, they have a degree of betamethasone in Okay. There. Okay. So the more horses you have, the more exposure you have. Now, if a horse has a tiny little cut and the groom is using a skin cream on himself and he's touching that cut and blah, blah, grooms don't think about that, anything like that, it gets into your horse's system. Bob Baffert's test was 21 picograms of betamethasone in that horse's body. A picogram, now think about this, a picogram is one millionth of a gram. We grew up in the 70s. We know what a gram of cocaine looks like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or so, a gram of the other stuff. Or the gram yeah, of the illegal got, stuff in New York. I got you. 21, one millionths of a gram in that horse's system. So it's, you know. No, I get it. I get it now, Gary. I get it now because on social media, this guy who people who don't know, and I don't speak upon any medications because I don't know. I can't go on social media knocking Bob Baffert because he's successful. He gets high-priced horses. At the, right. He gets the best of the best, right? Gary, if I gave you his stock and you would be winning the oh, same okay. amount of... That, that, but people, yeah. don't understand, people don't understand that. They think that... Oh, I saw one statistic. After the Kentucky Derby, he's 7-34 and 34 or something like that. 
what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, but I'm saying, what are you talking about? This guy wins. Listen, like the guy, unlike some of the trainers at the top in New York, the guy has always been an ambassador for the sport. He answers his phone. He'll talk to anybody. He'll stop and talk to a little kid. He has gotten sloppy with his medications. He needs his assistant trainers even are too busy talking to the press to watch what the grooms are doing. I would not be surprised if if it was a uh, environmental contamination of some sort, but it's the Kentucky Derby. I don't understand banning him from Kentucky for two years. Not for this. It's not a class one. It's not a class two. It's a class three. And, and New York, jumping on a bandwagon to look like they're doing something positive that's and saying, that's what can't run here. Give me a break. You, know you got, oh, but Linda, but you know, Linda, I like Linda a lot. She gets banned for three years. Bafford can't, she can appeal and Bafford can't run here. He's the, he is hands down. And I'm talking from my capital OTB experience, hands down the greatest ambassador for this sport. Absolutely. One of the few guys that promotes this sport. And, and he is being, outright mistreated right now that's my opinion it's like telling babe ruth that he can't come to the ballpark no more you got to stay away right. for two years i mean right oh man i just hope that horse racing somehow finds itself i, I don't know you know the situation like you talk with linda rice um bribing or paying off uh office to see to see uh racing entries and stuff like that i think as long as there's going to be people in the game, no matter what it is, there's going to be people who are going to try to cheat the game. Any sport, baseball, football, this, that, it's going to come. But we and get hit. Been, you're right. And it comes doctors, dentists, everybody. There's 1% of the, of the population of whatever you're talking about that try to cheat their way in and out. Or and, even, at, even at a game of Uno, a simple game of Uno, people, right. Monopoly or something. It's funny. <laughs> and I saw I saw Monopoly, talking about games, I saw Monopoly that – that's the, has the most fights of any family and friends fight over right. Mono- any board game. It's Monopoly. Well, What's that's the right. Right? What's the difference? Yeah, but that's funny. But so there's always going to be cheaters. We're, hopefully, we pass the bill, the uh, Anti-Doping Act, and and we get some. We get universal rules. That's the biggest that, problem we face today. Yes, 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 yes. The biggest problems we face today. People that don't know anything making the rules. And every single racing jurisdiction having different rules. When I, if I take a horse and I'm stabled at Delaware and I see a nice race at Laurel, I gotta go call the state vet at Laurel and ask, "What's your rule on this? What's your rule on that?" What's because it's completely different than it is one state over at Delaware and one state over in New York and New Jersey. And God, and, and God forbid, Gary, you took that horse there following the rules at Delaware and didn't know you'd be the next guy on the chopping block. Of, 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 and, of a and, and they'd be saying I'm a cheater too when it was just a, you know, when it was just a, a rule thing. We need universal rules across the entire nation when it comes to racing, and we need one body to make the decisions, not a bunch of political rejects. You're we right. need real people making the decisions for racing. Oh, Gary, I appreciate it, man. You're taking the time. And I, I always, I've, been, I've been saying that for 10 years that you need one governing party over racing, make it into a league or something like that, like an associate. Right. Or I don't know, but never gets done for some reason. I don't no. know, because there's some people out there, I guess, that it's too good for them, and it's no need to change because it's right. their benefit. So. 
That's like anything in life. But Gary, I appreciate yep. it. And uh, send you love to Jennifer and everybody else. And God bless her okay. with her recovery, man. I appreciate that. Anytime. You call me, that. my friend. I'll be watching you. I'll be watching you now. So I'll be taking watching you, man. Thank you so I'm much. i the first race tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. I'll watch. Yeah. Okay. Okay, man. Awesome. Gary Contesta. This is uh, Bucking Around, a new little podcast thing we're going to do live stream. And I do appreciate it, Gary. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take right. care. Everybody enjoy tomorrow. You got your Belmont stakes. I'm not going to get into Belmont picks, but thank you, Brad, for putting that up there. I really do appreciate it. I will have more of um, horse racing guys like Gary Contesta coming on. Uh, this guy is dynamite. Always been dynamite to me. Uh, who else do we have? I got coming up a local guest. I got a local show coming up and a bunch of other things, man. I'll, I'll keep you guys posted. This is a spur of the moment type thing, but Gary Contesta racing in Delaware now. Spending New York. Been in New York for how many years and years on that? Yes. Gary Contesta, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back with um, Bucking Around soon. Thank you.